This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 22, The Jewish Revolt of 66 AD. This episode will be primarily about the Jewish Revolt of 66 AD, that very revolt that Vespasian and Titus are dispatched to handle by Nero. It's a crucial event for history, not only for its relevance to Jewish and Middle Eastern history, but also because it brought Vespasian within arm's length of the emperorship. However, the narrative necessarily cannot start in 66 AD. There is so much history behind this event, and to fully appreciate its significance, we need to devote some time to it, and hence, an entire episode. A, a good portion of this episode will take place before 66 AD. This will be an extraordinarily brief description of these 130 years, largely focusing on the length and buildup of the crisis, with a focus on tying the revolt into the narrative of the four emperors, the history of Rome that we're familiar with. This episode is explaining Judaism, Jewish history up to 66 AD, and the revolt that took place in only its relevance to the Flavian dynasty. That is, not much of it. Let's now get into it. The narrative starts with a familiar face, in 66 BC. If you'll recall from the episodes on the late Republic, the cutthroat competition in Rome left a one-on-one -on -one civil war between Caesar and Pompey. Pompey was slightly older than Caesar, and even including Caesar's conquest of Gaul, Pompey was the most celebrated general in the empire by far. The main reason why he was viewed this way, and why he's also comparing himself to Alexander the Great all the time, was his eastern campaigns. In 66 BC, he left for the east, and by 63, he marched into Jerusalem to conclude his string of victories, and after a successful siege of the city and the temple, he knocked down the first domino that led to a fundamental change in Judaism. See, before the revolts that will occur in 66 and in the 2nd century AD, Judaism was a temple religion, and by the end of these revolts, it will no longer be. It'll be much closer to its form than it has today. There's at least two significant exceptions to this rule of it being located in one temple, but we don't have time to get into those right now. The Jewish communities that dotted the Eastern Mediterranean were connected to Jerusalem, with frequent pilgrimages to the Holy City. You may be familiar with Jerusalem as also an important religious city to Christianity, with several wars based loosely on capturing it in the Crusades of the Middle Ages. The Jewish relationship with Jerusalem was fundamentally different, and arguably more significant. So, what you'll see in the history of the Jewish revolts against Rome is an individual focus on the city of Jerusalem and the temple that it holds. The temple itself is effectively a fortress, a third layer of walls within the city. When Pompey besieged the city, he entered the outer walls and then put the temple itself under siege. It may be this fact itself that inspired what happened next. I attribute to the frustration that the Romans felt when the temple wouldn't surrender after the suburbs fell that Pompey entered the temple, entered the sacred area at the center reserved only for the high priest. This is sacrilegious and very offensive, but Pompey was curious and frustrated. After his campaigns in the east and the center of Judaism enrolled among the Roman influence, a puppet kingdom was established to maintain order. What is important to understand about the unsettled Jewish community in and around Jerusalem is that it is extremely diverse. There are at least three large and ideologically conflicting groups. And whenever you hear of a Jewish revolt, know that there is at least twice the fighting occurring under the hood of the Jewish war machine than there is against the Romans. Different groups will jockey for power as vacuums open up during unrest, meaning that concerted efforts to oppose the Romans or whoever are hard to formulate. 
For this reason, it is quite hard to track exactly who is fighting who during these revolts. And the main thing to understand is that it isn't a unified Jewish coalition against a unified Rome. There are many, many dissociating groups on either side, and it is extraordinarily complicated. The kingdom set up by Pompey was tumultuous. For the next 120 years, dodgy rulership would be the norm in the region. Given that this region was home to some of the most complex, heated, conflicting, and dangerous religious and political strife, qualified candidates would be needed to maintain the peace. Inept or greedy individuals would run the region into the ground, paving the way for the massive revolt that Vespasian was sent to quell. The kings set up in the late Republic would watch as the civil wars went one way or another, gambling on currying favor with the ultimate winners to improve their positions. For this reason, the power of the Judean kings rose and fell as leading factions in the capital came and went, and the positions that the monarchs had changed. The currying of favor with the populace, Rome, and the Parthians eventually resulted in a man named Herod coming to the throne of Judea in 37 BC, especially aligning himself with the triumvirs, Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus. Herod jumps out of the history books as one of the major exceptions in the string of dodgy rulers of Judea. He is rather divisive, because he aligned himself more with the Romans and portrayed himself as Greek, to the dismay of the Jews that he ruled. His rule was not exactly beneficial for the Jews, as more Greek and Roman influence entered Jerusalem and the region became more secular. His rule, however, lasted three and a half decades, with not much considerable violence. He is known to us as the Great, after all. There are many complaints to levy against Herod the Great, but this man knew how to play the game, what deals to make, buttons to press, and how to organize a state, well, until his later years. It was through Herod, as well, that Jerusalem will attain a unique position within Rome through a deal with Augustus. I'll try my best to explain that deal now. Those who learned about Roman history have probably heard that Rome is famously tolerant of religion, accepting foreign gods into their pantheon and leaving many provincials to their own religion. But this is rather misleading. The Romans were able to integrate foreign pagan religions into their own, taking what they pleased, but they also strictly enforced the worshipping of their gods onto their new subjects, especially the worship of the emperors. The Romans were in this manner more open to religion than most dictatorships in recent memory, with a degree of freedom of religion, as long as you aligned with the Roman pantheon in the most fundamental and political ways. Most pagans were open to this, but a brick wall was hit with the monotheists. The Jews and the Christians, among other groups, refused to worship anything but their singular god. The Jews making sacrifices in Jerusalem were pliable and had some respect from Rome due to their ancient roots. So, they struck a deal with Augustus. They would make sacrifices on his behalf in the temple. This was good enough for both parties, and the Jews were allowed to live their life largely unimpeded, unlike the Christians, who were given no such deal, and in all honesty, were not likely to make one if they had the chance. Back to the narrative. Herod's death in the middle of Augustus's reign left the region in turmoil. His sons vied for control of the region, but strife resulted ultimately in a revolt. A certain Varus, who you may have heard of in connection to the disaster at the Teutoburg Forest in 9 AD, swept up the revolt in extraordinarily violent fashion in 4 BC, crucifying 2,000 rebels. The Judeans then organized a new system with Augustus, and Roman prefects started being sent to oversee the province alongside a local Rome-approved king-slash-high priest. The system would mostly suck, with half a dozen prefects serving until the death of Caligula, who obviously received much criticism from the Bible. After all, I'm sure all the Christians in the audience know the name of at least one of these prefects, Pontius Pilate, who executed Jesus. These prefects would be infamous for greed and cruelty. I think there are two outstanders in this position, which had an average term length of five years across seven prefects. These two outliers are Pilate himself and Gratus. 
who ruled back-to-back for over a decade each. Both were in nearly impossible to manage situations with one of the most challenging provinces to lead. Given that they lasted a decade and avoided outright revolts, I say they did an adequate job. Pilate's execution of Jesus is, of course, an outstanding event, but in the grand scheme of things, does not appear to be an excessive use of force for the standards of Roman governors. Many were executed for far less. At the same time Jesus was executed in Judea, the self-exiled Tiberius' administration oversaw treason trials. Anyone even accused of treason was killed and their property was seized by the government. Rome could be a miserable place sometimes. This system lasted in relative peace until Caligula, of course. It's not entirely clear if Caligula was especially anti-Semitic, or if his trouble with this particular minority in the East is simply better recorded than his other racist inclinations. Who knows? Regardless, he did not handle a dispute between the Greek and Jewish inhabitants of the region with the requisite attentiveness. You know, requesting that a statue of yourself be set up in the Temple of Jerusalem is not exactly a tact move in this kind of sensitive religious business. Caligula's desired divinity and debated insanity aside, the region was ready to pour over into revolt at the time of his death. A descendant of Herod was appointed to the throne of Judea, and the prefecture was suspended. He did an adequate job of keeping the pot from boiling over, but the tensions were just as tight at the time of his death three years later. What started next was the disastrous procuratorship. This procuratorship is distinct from the prefecture in ways that are mostly superfluous for the purposes of this podcast. But in essence, it was a more powerful and militarily inclined position. Claudius saw the failure of the monarchy of Herod's line and chose to put in a strong Roman military presence. The main book I read for research of this particular time period, James Bloom's The Jewish Revolts Against Rome, AD 66-135, A Military Analysis, points to particular and significant mistakes or disasters by each of the procurators, except one. Each are defined by different villainous descriptions or marred with difficulties. The third was defined as making several bad decisions, the fourth as entirely incompetent, the fifth and sixth as corrupt. The second, however, was only described as facing several major problems. These six men ruled the region until 66 when war broke out, and their actions certainly didn't direct the region away from revolt. That one procurator that was not named by the book and had an uneventful reign, which is remarkable for running such a challenging province, is someone we've already met, Tiberius Julius Alexander. Do you remember him? If you don't, he's the authoritative procurator of Egypt, who is the first to proclaim Vespasian emperor alongside his troops. His appointment to Egypt, arguably the richest and most important province in the empire, is further proof that his position in Judea was a success since he was trusted with one of the only regions more significant. But now, with the crappy procurators out of the way, war will commence. Tensions had been building between the Greeks and the Jews since the times of Herod. These tensions, not alleviated by the procurators in the 60s, resulted in massive fighting in Judea. There are several key players, and each tried to create power for themselves and deliberate with the others, and there was much crappy behavior in individuals trying to take advantage of the chaos for profit. The violence escalated, and eventually, the procurator had to call for the governor of Syria to come help out. This governor had initial success in the region, and maybe it was the cocky attitude of the army that got them ambushed and wiped out. This made the situation extraordinarily dangerous. Now, for months revolt had been underway, but things took a serious turn when a Roman governor, an especially well-respected administrator and leader at that, was destroyed alongside his sizable army. 5,000 Roman soldiers now lay dead in Judea, and he died soon after, due to suicide. 
and another familiar face shows up, lining up the year of the four emperors. Musianus, Vespasian's colleague in revolt, was appointed to succeed this governor in Syria. Let's recall the imperial narrative as covered by previous episodes. At this point, Nero is in Greece, goofing around, fraudulently winning every event in the Olympics, and murdering his top generals. Who was left in his entourage was Vespasian, the now most celebrated general around, at the ripe age of 58. Vespasian was sent to handle the revolt. Alongside him came his nearly 30-year-old son, Titus. A coalition war government was formed in Jerusalem by the rebelling Jews, the city was fortified, and commanders were sent to every region that the Jews hoped to control. The most fateful of these would be Josephus. Appointed to the Galilee, the northwestern region closer to Damascus than to Jerusalem, Josephus is an odd choice because of how young he is, not even 30, similar in age to Titus. Josephus will eventually be known to you as Flavius Josephus, and his histories of the Jews and this very conflict will be essential for understanding this region and this time period, and most importantly, for the writing of this episode. So, perhaps you can guess how things will go for him. The young Josephus had challenges to his rule, and because of his position in the Galilee, he was one of the first to face off against Vespasian. Now, of course, it is his own account that tells us much of what we know, but it appears that Josephus was a capable and intelligent leader despite his age, and kept the Romans at bay for a surprising amount of time. He handled internal conflict, the Romans, and other enemies on all sides, all in stride and with expert precision. Josephus is at the very core a survivor and so would tactically maneuver and retreat around Vespasian to fight another day, instead of making a last stand. Vespasian slowly and methodically maneuvered his army, sizing something like 60,000 men, throughout the region. Vespasian was an intelligent commander, a true heir to the Roman style, artistically carving away his opposition in rigorously calculated strikes. Eventually, Josephus was caught up and surrounded while holding a fortified city. Vespasian besieged the city, and after a month and a half, in July of 67, it fell to him. It was a hard-fought battle, and in some ways, barely won by the Romans. The rebels, led by Josephus, vowed to fight to the bitter end. The rest of the leaders of the army committed mass suicide, but Josephus, ever the survivor, breaking his vow, emerged from the cave they hid in and surrendered to Vespasian. Realistically, he ought to have been killed, but he convinced Vespasian that he was a prophet, and that Vespasian would be emperor one day. Being a similar age to Titus, it seems as though the two got along and Titus ensured his safety. With a Jewish commander in his camp and vouching for him to anyone who would listen, Vespasian was in a significant position. He held the Galilee-ish, had delivered a massive victory, and some of the wind started to fall out of the sails of the rebels. Vespasian engaged in a long campaign until the end of 67, fighting multiple battles and taking heavy losses while making incremental successes. An interesting thing to note is that one of Vespasian's subordinates is the father of the future emperor Trajan. Trajan Sr.'s career will be summed up in another episode, but note that this is his first major post, and he will be one of the most successful figures in the Flavian period. By November of 67, another grueling and successful siege by Vespasian concluded his campaigning for the year, with the entirety of the Galilee subjugated by the machine-like, deliberate, and algorithmic legions of the Flavian. Much like the third act of many lazily written movies and shows, it was expected that the whole war would instantly collapse if one target was neutralized, Jerusalem. This city's singular importance to the rebellious Jews may have contributed to the revolt, as the Romans disrespected it specifically, but it also made the war somewhat simpler. At least it appeared so to the Romans, who thought that the collapse of Jeru Jerusalem would mean the end of the revolt. This won't entirely be the case, but effectively it would be. So, as 67 turned to 68, 
Vespasian laid out plans for Jerusalem. Of course, what else happened in 68? The imperial narrative kicks in again and becomes significant. Nero rushes back to Rome, and in February, Vindex will revolt. By June, a new emperor would be in place. And ultimately, the turmoil in Rome meant that Vespasian had no orders. And let's be honest, he was sitting around and thinking about throwing his hat in the imperial ring. So, for all of 68, nothing happened. Except Vespasian laid the groundwork for one of the most consequential sieges ever put into action. He campaigned lightly, establishing a position for an attack on Jerusalem. As Nero fell and Galba started his misguided rule, Vespasian finally decided to declare for the elder emperor in December of 68. Galba was his superior in age, in experience, and in birth, so there was no reason to not support his rule. Vespasian fell into line and dispatched Titus and the Roman-appointed king of Judea to Rome. By the end of 68 AD, Vespasian controlled all of the region, with only a system centered around Jerusalem holding out. Of course, by the middle of January 69, Galba would be dead and Otho would be crowned emperor. Vespasian watched as Otho ruled and fell, and the gluttonous Vitellius took power in Rome. Now in the summer of 69, he's hearing that the troops of Musianus and Alexander in Syria and Egypt respectively are in his support, and the rumor on the street is that the Balkans are going to sway to him if he throws his hat in the imperial ring. Ultimately, Vespasian felt that Vitellius might kill him, and at the behest of the procurator of Egypt, that we mentioned before, he was proclaimed emperor, while simultaneously staring down the center of the Jewish religion. Titus returned to Vespasian after Galba's death, and the two of them sat in Egypt, choking the food supply to Rome. They were in Alexandria, likely frantically ordering their subordinates in Judea to keep the delicate situation there in their favor, when they heard that the Balkan troops entered Italy. Then they heard that they somehow won every conflict they engaged in, and then they heard that they took the city, overthrew, and killed Vitellius. There you have it. Vespasian is emperor. Musianus is about to secure the capital, and Jerusalem is ready for the pickings. Finally, Josephus turns out to be a prophet. He will be freed and adopted by Vespasian, taking the Flavian name, likely at the behest of Titus, and became one of the dynasty's most important propagandists, writing a favorable account of this revolt. Vespasian stayed in Alexandria, while Musianus led in Rome and Titus besieged Jerusalem. Titus's siege took the better part of a year, but his ultimate victory led to the destruction of the temple and the looting of its precious contents. Titus and Vespasian returned to Rome in the fall of 70 AD to become the emperors of the largest multinational empire in the world. Maybe another day, I will look more closely at the Jewish revolt and specifically the siege of Jerusalem. But for now, this is all the time we have. If you want to ask me more questions or leave suggestions about the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head on over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I will be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. This is not required or expected, this podcast will remain free, and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student, who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once. Next time, I will talk about the reign of Vespasian, or maybe I won't. I'll see you then. Mm -hmm.